Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And those studios were historic even before we set foot in here. You're welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 205. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. I'm brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Welcome, welcome. Good to have you along this week for the latest edition of the podcast. Normally a couple of guests on the show, but just one this week. But when your one guest has had the incredible kind of life that Carol Connors has led, that's all you need right there. Let's see where to begin. Well, we begin with the fact that she was not Carol. She was born Annette Kleinbard. And in 1958, while still in high school in Los Angeles, her friend Phil Spector told her that if she had $10, she could make a record. (laughs) Ended up writing a song designed just for her voice. Their three-person group was called the Teddy Bears, and they hit the top of the charts and stayed at number one for three weeks with a classic. To know him is to love him. She went on to a remarkably successful career as a songwriter, was the first woman to break into the boys' club of writing car songs in the 1960s with the ripcords, Hey Little Cobra. She went on to earn a pair of Oscar nominations for her work, including co-writing the theme from Rocky, Gonna Fly Now. She's written a number one smash, a million seller for Billy Preston and Sarita Wright with You, I'm Born Again. And along the way has dated people like Robert Culp, David Jansen, and testified in the O.J. Simpson trial as well. Some of the many things we discussed with Carol Connors, Cece, here on Downtown. Hello, is this Cece? Is this the fugitive? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is indeed. (laughs) Aren't you sweet? (laughs) Okay, so I'm here. Talk to me, or I guess I'm going to be talking to you. Well, we'll talk to each other. Uh, where where do we begin? Well, you you mentioned your dad. Let, let's talk about your parents. Uh, they emigrated to the United States. What year was that? Well, uh, my father came, you're not sure if he came in 1899 or 1900. My father would be um, 120-something today. There was a 19 and a half years difference between my parents. Uh, my father, they were both born in Poland, and my father went back to Poland in 1938 to um, a, sort of an arranged marriage to my mother. They, there were five sisters, and my mother was supposed to study in the Warsaw Conservatory of Music Opera. She had the most beautiful voice, but um, it didn't happen. Uh, my father brought her out of Poland, a place called Nodobois, and Hitler invaded in 1939, and the entire family was um, annihilated mm. in the Holocaust. My word. Yeah. Uh, I never, ever met it. I never had grandparents. I never met any of my, you know, aunts or whatever. Um my aunt Sarah, which was my mother's younger sister, um, did not go to the gas chamber. She escaped, 
and she got all the way to the Russia, and she died in the snows of Russia. Mm. But I, you know, I, I used as a child, I used to play these really bizarre games with myself because I was like always thinking about things, and I used to say if I had to die in a gas chamber. Now I'm very young at the time. Maybe I was 13, or die in the snow. Which would I prefer if God came? And I'm not a religious fanatic, but if God came down to me and said, "You can only you're dying, one or the other," I would pick the snow, because you go into hypothermia and you go to sleep. The other, you're gasping for Mm. air. How did you end up in Los Angeles? Um. Well, I was born in New Jersey, and um, my father's brother, my father's brother, moved to uh, California, to Los Angeles. And uh, when my mother made my dad give up being a jockey when I was born, because it was so dangerous, especially in those days, Mm. still is actually, um, my father moved the family. We moved out here. And my father ended up working for my um, uncle, who made beautiful lamps and everything. And my dad was very creative, but he was, I'm a Scorpio like him, but he never fulfilled his dream, which was to become a great jockey. And he probably would have because he was a very good jockey. And I, that always stayed with me all my life. Well, you certainly followed your dreams, and, and it started uh, very young. You were at, uh, what, Fairfax High School? No, and... I was in junior high school, Louis Pasteur. Oh, my word. Mm-hmm. But I was graduating. I was going in, into high school. And that's when yes, Phil please. Spector said, uh, hey, if you got $10, we can make a record? Yep. Well, <laughs> it was a little bit different. He was dating my girlfriend, Donna. He did not write the Richie Fallon. Donna's song, even though he took credit for everything. He didn't write that. But he was going with Donna. We we had just we were going going to be going into high school. And um I was sort of the lookout or the beard or whatever you want to call it in those days. And they would be smooching and I was sort of standing guard and I would be twiddling my thumbs and singing because I still do both, by the way. I still twiddle my thumbs and I still sing because my mother had the most glorious voice and would sing to us all these beautiful opera, opera um, arias when my sister and I were growing up. She, she was a year and a half younger than me. So she would come in at night to sing us these beautiful arias from Madame Butterfly, from Carmen, from La Boheme. And, of course, we didn't want to hear that. We, want, we would go, we want daddy. We want daddy. And then my father would come and tell us these dangerous stories about the racetrack. So I was always singing. And Phil one day said to me, I love your voice. I'm going to write a song for your voice. Um, Do you have $10? Because if you have $10, then you can also be in our singing group. And I said, Phil, I'm like 16 and a half. I don't have $10. I don't even have 10 cents. And he said, well, if you can get together $10, you can come be in our group. So I badgered my parents. I mean, I was, you know, like really, really a brat. And I kept saying, because we were quite poor, and I kept saying, 
if you give me the ten dollars, we're going to have the the number one record, and and we're going to live in a mansion, and and Daddy, I'm going to buy you a racehorse, and he would go, No, I'm off the track. I don't want a horse. <laughs> <laughs> he, always, he always said that, and my mother kept saying, Annetta, my real name's Annette, Annetta, go do your homework. And my father, I, I just kept driving them nuts. And my father said, Gail, give her the $10. Just give her the $10. <laughs> and my, we were a very matriarch family, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And I got the $10, and I went to Phil. And Phil said, okay, you're in our group. And we recorded. We went into the studio, and we recorded the flip side of To Know Him Is To Love Him, which is Don't You Worry, My Little Pet, one of the worst songs in the pl- on the planet. <laughs> but my voice kept cutting through because I, I was the girl. And my part was, I'll think of you. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And Phil said, I even love your voice more on tape than I do in person. And he went on to write the song. And about two weeks later, he called me up. It was, guess what I was doing? My homework. And he said, this is the song. What do you think of it? And he went, no, no, no. And he did it on guitar and uh, over the phone singing it. And I said, well, I don't know. His, he did not have a very good singing voice. I said, I don't know. He said, well, be here tomorrow. We're going to rehearse. <laughs> and I said, well, how am I supposed to get there? Because they, they were up near Fairfax High School. And he said, take the bus. And I did. And we would go to Phil's house. I would go to Phil's house. And Mother Bertha, his mother's name was Bertha, and his sister, who became our manager, who was a monster, was named Shirley. And they would be screaming. And I wasn't used to that in my household because my father would lose his temper for a split second, and it was all over. He never did anything. But they were screaming at the top of their lungs. And we would then leave the house. He was slam out of the door, and we would walk to Phil, to Marshall Lieb's house, which was three blocks away on Genesee, I think it was. I think that was the name of the street. And we were like a garage band. And that's where we rehearsed in this garage. Went into the studio, did it in two takes, one for balance, wow. gold star. Dan Ross was the uh, engineer. We put them on the map. I did the version in 22 minutes, I was out of the stu- out of the recording studio, and he came up to me and he said, "I only did one take all the way through," and he said, "There's no splice, no nothing," and he said, before I started singing, he said, "Sing it like you were singing to your boyfriend." I said, "Phil, I don't have a boyfriend. <laughs> you know that. I'm too young," and he went. And sing it like you were thinking of your father. And his, you know that it came from his father's epitaph. Right, uh, which was to know him was to love him. That's right. Very. Oh, God, have you done your homework? <laughs> and he took it and turned it into a teenage lament. And it became to know him is to love him. And he literally produced, I mean, he was the producer. He heard something in my voice, wrote the song for it. Sandy Nelson played drums on it. Right. First time, I mean, he went on to do Teen Beat, 
Bill told him exactly what he wanted on drums. I was there. I was watching him show him. And and they sang the harmonies and whatever. After um, they, they added after. I sang it by myself. And then the, the boys did the bododos and, and the harmonies. It and was a two-track machine. And it became a monster hit, number one, for weeks yeah. on the Billboard chart. You were the first woman to reach the number one spot on the brand-new Hot 100. And it's, I didn't even know that. Yeah, and it's, and it's a classic, and it sounds as amazing today as it did then. I was watching on YouTube the other night a clip from the Perry Como show <laughs> with you guys on there. It was great. I mean, that was the funniest because the night before the Perry Como show, you know, when we were doing the rehearsals, the uh, guy, the day before, uh, Ray Charles, not the Ray Charles, but Ray Charles from his, that was the name of his conductor. I hit, when I went for the high note, because he wrote it so that my, it was from a Wagnerian opera. The middle part is based on a Wagnerian, I don't know, I don't remember which one, but very unusual chords. When I play, when I would, when I perform it, not one band ever gets one part right. <laughs> they don't expect it. Um, it, it, it uh, changes uh, chords in the middle of, of, a, of, a, of a bar. But the bottom line is I hit a bad note. And Phil took me aside. <laughs> it's very strange. But, you know, we were kids. And he said, if you f*** up my song, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. <laughs> you know? You know, those were his words. When I went, if you look at the tape again, right before I go, I start singing in the bridge. A look of panic comes over my face. (laughs) But I hit every single note. And at the end, you can see where, you know, Perry Como says to them, and I know you're going, you know, on to college, what? Where are you going, little girl? And I went. I'm going back to high school. <laughs> oh, we are talking with. Uh, we're talking with what? Carol Connors here on Downtown. All right, I have to know. So, how did that that song, among other things, lead to you getting together with Elvis? Well, let me just finish one oh, other okay. statement that you, that I think is lovely. Talia Shire and I became very good friends during Rocky. And she said to me that to, the, my voice <coughs> on to know him of is to love him was the sound of innocence. Mm. Because in that time, it was very rhythm and blues. Shaboom, uh, you know, the Penguin, you know, all those groups. And all of a sudden, this angelic little voice, which was mine, <laughs> came out of this record. She said it was the sound of innocence, Carol. All right. Well, let's go to the end of the innocence then. Oh. And Elvis. (laughs) um, He always loved to know him as to love him. He loved my voice. He he loved the song. He loved my voice. Very funny. When I met Carol Shelby, I met Carol Shelby because of to know him as to love him and cracking up my boyfriend's car. But that's beside the point. But he always, and he had... The Memphis Mafia, you know, the, that was what the guys were called. Right. We were always around Elvis. And Joe Esposito was always with him. And you you know the Colonel Parker. By the way, the new Baz Lerman, have you seen the trailer? No. I'm going to send it to you. 
It is so brilliant. Is this the uh, the Colonel Parker movie with Tom Hanks? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'm going to send you the trailer when, when when I get off the phone. Can't wait. It's brilliant. It's br- if if Tom Hanks does not get an Oscar nomination and win it, I'm going to eat the film. I mean, it is, <laughs> and Baz Luhrmann, he did Moulin Rouge. You know, he's a very very he's from um, Australia. Incredible director. So what happened was. I was in a market, and this very creepy guy came up to me, and he was really creepy. And he said, aren't you the girl that sang to know him is to love him? And I went, yes. I was sort of taken aback, and he said, well, Elvis Presley would love to meet you. And I went, yeah, right, (laughs) (laughs) because he was such a creepy guy. Name was Corey something. I can't. Remember the last name, but he was part of that, not the inner, not Lamar and the inner circle, but that circle of hangers on of Elvis's. Right. And being that I was my father's daughter, I lived on the edge. You know what I mean? I didn't (laughs) mind taking chances. I mean, my dad never, he was not a gambling man, but jockeys live on the edge. They're standing on a horse. So the bottom line is about a week later, I gave him my phone number. And I was living at my mother's and dad's, and about a week later, he called me. And he said, or two weeks, he said, I, uh, I'd i like to take you up to meet Elvis. And I went, yeah, right, to myself. <laughs> but because of my, you know, be- being very adventurous, I said, okay, pick me up at my mother's. We went up to Elvis's. He lived on, he was living, renting a place on Bellagio at the time. In Bel Air, this is around 1964, was when this happened because he had just finished filming *Viva Las Vegas* with Anne Margaret, and he was like this beautiful cat. Rich, I mean, it was he was like this cat, and I love cats. I mean, just <laughs> he didn't walk; he sort of prowled, if you know what I mean. And he, I was like the mouse, and he was standing on one side of a pool table, if I remember. He walked over to me, and his first words were, so, uh, why'd you name the group the teddy bears? <laughs> and, and I looked at him, and I thought, it really is Elvis Presley. <laughs> you know? And I said, just want to be your teddy bear. And that started our love affair. Oh, how about that? Now, you mentioned Carol Shelby. Tell us the story, please, about uh, was it a challenge from Carol Shelby that he said, bet you can't write a song about the Cobra? How did you know? <laughs> Pretty <laughs> close. So I, after Elvis, when we broke up, he said two and a half years to Shelley Fabre that we went together. And I said, no, Elvis, it was more like nine months. And he said, um, and I say, too bad I didn't have a baby. I mean, he was my first boyfriend, and boy, did I put him through the ropes. I mean, my first boyfriend. I'm not going to reiterate on that statement. So now, now we had Shelly. Uh, we had Shelly Fabray on, and because she told us that Elvis, when they worked together, Elvis left her alone because by that, at that point she was married, I think, to Lou Adler. Oh, and God knows, Lou Adler suit was wanted to sue me for a hey, little cobra. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And I, I, he didn't go forward because my brother-in-law was a music attorney, 
and took the song to a musicologist. But let me tell you about Carol. So I'm dating the psychiatrist because I needed a psychiatrist. <laughs> I mean, I really, his name was Dr. Vadim Kondratiev. I swear to God. Well, you couldn't make that up. No, nor would I. <laughs> and uh, he had an AC Bristol. And I damaged the front of the car. It was still drivable, but it was cracked up. And um, he had just read an article about a guy named Carol Shelby who was building this Cobra based on an AC Bristol from England body and put it dumping a 260 at the time. Do I know my terms? A 260 <laughs> engine into it. So he said, why don't you go see Carol Sh this guy, Carol Shelby? He was in El Segundo at the time. So I drove the AC Bristol out there. I called. I said who I was. And the secretary said, Mr. Shelby, will see you. And I went in. I drove the car there. And I walked in. I had on little hip huggers and a little crop top. And I was very tiny. I'm still tiny, but I was really tiny. And uh, bigger than life. Carol Shelby was bigger than life. He was like Paul Bunyan, Davy Crockett. He was from uh, East, uh, Texas. And he looked at me and he said, I love to know him is to love him. You know? <laughs> and I said, well, um, Mr. Shelby, I said, I cracked up my friend's car. I didn't say boyfriend. I'm a Scorpio. I was too smart. I said, I cracked up my friend's car and it's an AC Bristol. Can you put a Cobra front on an AC Bristol back? <laughs> and he looked at me in horror and he said, I can't do that, little girl. He said, but if you write a song about my car and it becomes a big hit, I'll give you one and I'll take you to Le Mans. <laughs> well, ooh la la, I went to Le Mans the year 1965 before Ford won the GT40s in 1966 and took first, second, and third place with Ken Miles. And I was there with Carol and Lee Iacocca, wow. who was the head of high performance. If mm. you saw the film, he was the head of high performance for Ford at the time. And and that's how I got the, I, I owned two different Cobras. The first one was a 260, which is now worth a gazillion dollars, but it was a pain. And the second one was a 289 with a high-rise manifold, and it turned out um, 320 horsepower, if I'm not mistaken. And then my sister damaged it because you forgot to put water in it. And they had to take it on a truck. And he then rebuilt the engine block and sent it back to me. And that, I always thought it was the third Cobra. But when they looked up the records, it was really the second Cobra that Carol had just rebuilt. Talking with Carol Connors here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll pause for a moment for a word from Cross Insurance and back with more of CC right after this on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 
woman, don't you know with you I'm born again. A million seller for Billy Preston and Sarita Wright with you, I'm born again. Written by our guest this week on the podcast, Carol Connors. More of our conversation right now. How'd you get together with, uh, I think, one of the most interesting figures in, in, in music in the 1960s because uh, he seemingly was everywhere as a DJ and as a songwriter. Uh, how'd you work with Roger Christian? Well, because of Hey Little Cobra. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was writing all the songs with Brian Wilson and everything. All the, you know, the, the, it was called The California Sound. And there was the surfing, and then there was the hot rods. And if you look up, I, I'm sure you have, you know that Roger's name is on many, many of those songs. Right. Well, because of a, the, Brian Wilson once said to me, he never forgave me because I penetrated the all-boys club. <laughs> and he said to me once, we always knew it was written by a girl. <laughs> and he spit the word out. And I said, well, Brian, how did you know that? Because it was like, uh, well, he said, because you can't take your car out of gear and let it coast to the line. And I said, Brian, if your car is that far in front, that's exactly what you can do. <laughs> and Roger and I wrote a couple things together. Well, yeah, and one of them should have been a hit if there was any justice uh, terrific song, My Baby Looks, But He Don't Touch. I love that song. It's one of my favorite. Isn't that? Oh, my God. That's one of my favorite things that I have ever recorded. Well, I, 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 I assume it's like uh, so many others at the time, just uh, not the right management, not the right label or the right situation, because uh, it's as good as anything the Supremes were doing in those days. Uh, thank you. I always felt that Phil tried to keep me out of the business. Because Phil was a very Bengali-ish. Mm. He would create these incredible masterpieces in rock and roll. And even the Paris sisters were a copy of me. Priscilla told me that. That Phil played her, uh, you know, to know him as to love him. And said, I want you to not, co you know, I want you to be similar to this. Right. You know, but he knew he had his finger on it. And I believe that it, in his way... He tried to blackball me out of the industry. Mm. I've always felt that. We're talking with Carol Connors here on Downtown. Well, let's fast forward to uh, the mid-1970s, and uh, you work with Bill Conti coming up with an Oscar-nominated song. How did you come into the orbit of uh, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky? Uh, my, my girlfriend and I, Ann Robbins, we uh, were with an agent. Uh, named Stan Melander, Bart Melander, and Bill Conti was with them. So they they said, you know, there's a little film that they're, they'd like you to go look at. They need a song. And um, so we went to the screening room. And it, now remember, it was a rough cut. So there was, there was no, if, you, if I would punch you, there would be no sound. And there was temp music. So we're all... Annie, Bill, and I, and Sylvester Stallone, and Chardoff and Winkler, and John Avelson, and John Avelson's friend, were all sitting there. And the film comes on, didn't have the big rocky thing, you know, that it opens mm. with. And there's a song that goes, 
He's got, I'll never forget it. He's got a Sunday punch that will put you into Monday. And I said to Bill, I said, <laughs> Bill, why do they want us? That's not bad. And he said, shut up, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> Whispered it to me. And the film is, you know, we're watching the whole film. And they had, basically, it was almost two sequences of the iconic scene of him punching, you know, eating the yolks, punching the, the, the beef, you know, running through Philadelphia in the middle of the morning and climbing up the steps. And film ends, and this little man who is a friend of John Avelson stands up, and he says, he says to John, very quietly, John, you have an incredible film here. John, you have a great film here. His voice kept going up. John, you have a remarkable film. John, this film is going to win the Oscar, <laughs> and you're going to win as best director if you do one little thing. <laughs> And we're all sitting there going, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, quote, get rid of that song. (laughs) Well, that blank, blank song was written by Frank Stallone. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, dear is right. But, you know, at that time, Sly did not have the power he ended up having. And Avelson, they all came to my home. The man was, if I'm not mistaken, Ray Bradbury, the, the famous uh, science oh, spy, wow. spy writer. And he was friends with John Avelson. And they came to my home, and Bill Conti sat down at my piano, and he went, at, let's see, Chartoff, Winkler, Sly didn't come, Bill Kay, of course, and he came. Um, and we're, they're all sitting there. And he sits down, and he goes, ba 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 And I say to myself, what in God's name is anybody going to write to that? And they all leave. <clears throat> and I went to take a shower. And I'm in the shower, and all of a sudden, the entire film is running through my head. And that sequence, that iconic sequence. And I went, oh, my God. I, I, oh, my God. And in those days, you could take your phone into the shower. Into the, you know, like it was a cord phone. Right. And I took it into the shower and I called Bill Conti and I said, Bill, I know what, I know what the film's about. I know what life's about. I know what the song's about. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm in the shower. (laughs) He said, are you with somebody? (laughs) I said, Bill, I'm a Scorpio. If I was with somebody, would I be calling you? <laughs> and he said to me, quote, give me the line before you electrocute yourself. <laughs> and the line was, going to fly now. Because at that moment in time, he could, uh, I could see it. He could go the distance. He could win. He could do anything any of us set our minds to doing. He could even fly. Because when John Appleson put him in slow motion, because we saw that on top of the stairs, he was flying. And that's where it came from. What a great story. The song. 
you uh, you had a long relationship with, with the great actor Robert Culp. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and the beautiful, wonderful song that it was inspired by that relationship? Um, I met Robert at Hefner's because after uh, Rocky, I was invited up to Hefner's because of you know all the publicity and being the uh, the girl associated with Rocky, blah 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 blah. And Mary O'Connor, I know there's a lot of things going on right now with, you know, uh, destroying his legacy. But Hef was quite wonderful to me. And my best friend is Barbie Benton. Right. So Hef uh, assistant, Mary Mary Connors, called me and said, Mr. Hefner would like to invite you up to the Midsummer's Night Dream Party. And I was so excited. I said, oh, my God, I've... I've never been up to the Playboy Mansion. Oh, my God. She said, but you can't bring anyone. Can't bring a guy. And I went, um, and I thought about it. There was like a pregnant pause, like in film. And I went, Miss Connors, which is so bizarre. I said, I would love to come up, but I will not go anywhere unescorted. And she said, let me get back to you. A couple hours later, the phone rang. And she said, Mr. Hefner, we would love you to come up. Would you please be kind enough to give us your escort's name? And I met Robert Culp up there. Wow. And he was one of the great loves of my life. And if you listen to, which I hope you are going to play, the second line, in, because uh, I wrote the song for him. I, I, want, I wrote it with David Shire, but I wanted... Robert, which, by the way, he was married to Talia Shire and was supposed to do Rocky and was doing all the president's men, and Bill Conti got the the gig to do mm. the score. Is that incestuous wow. or what? Wow. So um, the second line, come bring me your son, comfort me through all this madness. And I said to Robert, I said, you know, Robert, that that line really doesn't scan. That was the word David and I would use. It just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't scan. And it doesn't really rhyme correctly. And he said to me, if you throw that line out of that song, don't tell anybody you wrote it for me. <laughs> I said, what? Wow. He said, Carol, it is such a powerful, he was quite a thinker. He was quite brilliant. He said, don't, don't throw that line out. It's far too powerful. It says it all. And I kept it in. It's because of Robert that I kept that line in. And it took a while for the song to become a hit because it was right in the midst of the, the disco era, but, but great music always will win out, I think. And, and it's become, I think, a landmark song and one of the great moments of Billy Preston's career. Oh, I know. And... When we were in the studio with Bill, you know, it was on Motown, and Barry Gordy was like one of my mentors. I'm, I have to tell you the great quote that Barry Gordy said to me. You may want to use this. Barry Gordy once said to me, Carol, a hit record is repetition. If it was a hit, it was infectious. If it was a miss, it was monotonous. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. I never forgot that. And I always give credit where credit is due. 
that is not my line. I mean, that was his. He, he told me that. And he didn't want to be bothered with it. He was doing something else. And Suzanne DePast and I, I have an exec producer credit on that, put that together. And she and he, she and Barry together, wanted something for Billy Preston and Sarita, who was Stevie Wonder's ex-wife. Right. And did most of the demos for the Supremes. And it's, to me, it's, I, I, there's been like, what, 100 covers on I don't mm. know. I mean, Mariah Carey, Johnny Mathis, Michael Crawford, the late Barbara Morrison, who just passed away. She did a gorgeous jazz version. I mean, it's, it's so incredible. And it was so beautiful. And I kept that line in because of Robert. Now, as someone who has been called by various people the fugitive for uh, more than 50 years now, <laughs> right. tell me about your relationship with David Jansen, another terrific actor. Um, I really, I, I think two of the great, I mean, yes, Elvis was my first boyfriend, but I think two of the great loves of my life were David and Robert. And David had such a wonderful, wonderful sense of, sense of humor. I'll tell you one very funny story. Uh, that I think is outrageous. He was, you know, he had left his wife, Danny, and we were going together, and we were on the cover of the Enquirer and blah, 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 blah. David Jansen in love with the Rocky songwriter or whatever it was. In fact, Stallone once said to me, you're getting more press than I have. <laughs> I'll never, not for long, but whatever. <laughs> so we were going together, and he did, was doing a film called A Sensitive, Passionate Man with Angie Dickinson. And I wrote the theme song with David, the lyrics, and the music with Bill Conti. Melba Moore. Remember Melba Moore? I sure do. Oh, God, I loved her voice. She sang it in the film. So we're, we're doing the film and whatever, and there was a premiere for something else. And he, because he was working with Angie, was told to take Angie to the premiere. And not of, the, of, of Sensitive Passion Man, of some other film. And I was hysterical. I said, David, you're supposedly madly in love with me, and you're taking Angie Dickinson to a premiere? The whole town will know. Everybody in the world will know. Don't ever, ever a typical Scorpio, don't ever call me again. <laughs> don't ever darken my, you know, oh, all that dialogue. He took her to the thing, and I cried myself to sleep. Oh, I was so upset. That early, early in the morning, about 2 o'clock, there was a knock on my door. I said, how can you take her to a black tie affair? How can you do this to me? And there was David. He had such a sense of humor, standing there in a black tie, no shirt, holding his jacket, and, of course, his pants were on. And he said, you always said you wanted to have a black tie affair. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's a sense of humor. How could I stay angry? <laughs> I didn't. And we're... he was very, it was very, it's very funny. Even though both of them were similar, I mean, I spy and the fugitive, they were both very sensitive men and very creative incredibly creative. We're talking with Carol Connors here on downtown. There's so much to cover and talk with you, but I want to talk about some things coming up. And, and my gosh, I don't know what's taken it so long, but a documentary about your life is in the works. Yes, it is. 
we were debating between two titles. Um, it was um, it, it's ba- it started because of the story the, the night the day that Elvis died. I was so saddened by it. I had been at the polo lounge, and I was in a meeting. And this, they, there used to be a little guy that would come in, and uh, like a, a Philip Morris, and he would always say, "Phone call for Mr. Kimball," <laughs> and then everybody, the neck would crane, and everybody would see because the phone would be brought to the table, and blah blah blah. He came running in, and he said, "Elvis Presley just died. Elvis Presley just died." And I was so sad that I couldn't go on with the meeting. I started crying. I went home and I wrote a tribute to my love affair with David, called with David, with Elvis, called "You Loved My Night Away." Put it in my piano bench for forty some years. Mm. Told it to Chip Rosenblum, who was the owner of the Rams. He just sold it to um, uh, Crocky, Cracky, the guy that we just won out here. Right. But, uh, his father had been Carol Rosenblum. Carol Rosenblum, sure. Yeah. And his mother was Georgia Frontieri. Yeah. So his father won uh, in the Baltimore Colts, moved the team out to L.A., and after Carol passed away, she moved it to St. Louis. And the Kurt Wag- uh, Warner, Warner, what a great film. I love that film. Mm. Um, they won. They won the Super Bowl there. And then, of course, when she passed away, it went to Chip and, and his sister, the bottom line, he was so he's, he loves music, loves music, wonderful composer. He was so taken by it that he's the one who initiated the, the documentary. And it, it's really my life. And what I guess the lead line of it, if you want, is my life is my music and my music is my life. Because it's really what, what I've been all about all these years. You're also getting a, an important award coming up in October in uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida. Can you tell us about that? It's called the Visionary Award for my music and the philanthropic things I've done. And um, hopefully I'll be able to show the documentary or part of the documentary there. I think it's called the Treasure Coast. Treasure Coast. Um, I'm not sure the name of the, I think that's the name of the film festival. It's a film festival. So I'm very excited about that because, you know, we were almost finished with it. And then, uh, you know, everybody, the whole world, you know, what we've suffered, Mm. this uh, apocalyptic pandemic that we've gone through. So my my whole life stopped, as did everybody. I mean, Jay Leno was doing a major piece on me in a Cobra, you know, the show he used to do about the garage. Uh, That was a... a nine o'clock wake up, a nine o'clock makeup call on a Wednesday. Friday was <laughs> Disney's luncheon for me because all the young animators. I, I also did the Rescuers, right. Walt Disney, which was an Oscar nomination, and they wanted to meet me, so they were having a big luncheon for me. Blah 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 blah. And our governor shut down the state on a Monday. Yeah. That I, bad timing. <laughs> mm. So coming out of the pandemic, hopefully my documentary is now going to be coming out. And also, I'm performing. I have not performed in Hollywood since I performed on the stage at the Greek theater with the teddy bears to know Mr. Lovell. That's how many years ago. And you're going to be at the Catalina Bar and Grill, right? Yes. 
very prestigious. What happened was I did a show in Palm Springs at Oscars, and there were people that were there that were from the Catalina, and they booked me. And I am, a lot of people are buying tickets. In fact, if some of your listeners want to come, you know, out here to Hollywood, I would love it. All they have to do is go to Catalina Bar and Grill, and I think there's a segment that says tickets and who's coming up, and I'll be there May 19th. I I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm thrilled. That is wonderful. All right, I've got a couple more things. We, we, okay. We've kept you far too long, but I've, I've still got more questions. How did you end up testifying at the O.J. Simpson trial? Yes, I was <laughs> with him the night before the murder. Oh, well, that's how. Not with him. Uh, he was with Paula Barbieri. I was at the same party that he was at. It was a $25,000 plate dinner, and he was at the next table. And um, we had had dialogue before I knew him. Uh, and um, he owned Abys- they, they owned Abyssinian cats, and I own Abyssinians. They're very rare. <clears throat> and um, I said, he said, "Oh, you look so beautiful. I love your dress. I can send you a picture. I'll send you the picture that was taken. There were only three pictures taken that night, and it was like um, this really interesting dress with this beautiful bag that I was holding. And there were these three little ladies, and they said." Oh, can we get a picture with O.J.? Can we get a picture with us? So I said, O.J., would you mind taking a picture with us? And he said, of course not, Carol. So we took the picture, and I said, O.J., how's everything? How are your Abyssinians? And he said, it was very cold the way he said this. He said, they're all dead. Oh, jeez. Just like that. Wow. I'll never forget that because it was chilling. Mm. And I said, how's Nicole? Of all things. Oh, dear. And he said, fine. Just like that. Wow. And the next day she was dead. Yeah. All right. Thought much lighter topic here. Thank you. Can you can you tell me the story about your sister and watching Abbott and Costello meet the werewolf? <laughs> my, my sister and I would go to matinees. And... Um, we would go to see Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and the werewolf and the this and the that. But we were like scaredy cats. So I was older. So, of course, the minute that Frankenstein or the werewolf would come on, we would duck under our seats, you know, onto the floor, which was really hideous. Think of all the bubble gum that was there. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, we would, and we would, like, peek up. But I was, since I was the older one, I would peek up first, and my I would look up, and there would still be the werewolf on, and my sister would be screaming, and she'd say, can I stop screaming now? And I'd go, no, no, and I'd go back down and scream, and then a little bit later, I'd go back up, and we wouldn't get up off the floor till the werewolf was gone. <laughs> can you, you believe, is that, a, it was a theater called the Pick Fair. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget it. Uh, you've been such a, an active member uh, of the Academy, so I, I wanted to ask, did they do the right thing in regard to Will Smith? Well, if you look at the Hollywood Reporter uh, yesterday, that I've only had about 5,000 exploding emails, I'll send it to you. Um, I'm the first quote out of there. Oh, my. Do I think they did? Yes. I don't think they should have. Uh, first of all, I think it is unacceptable what he did. One of my friends is a leading um, 
what do you call it, bodyguard, um, David Lopez. He's just one of the top guys. And he said, that's assault and battery, Carol. That's battery. And to have it on national TV, <laughs> on world television, and I think that Chris Rock handled it with great dignity. Mm-hmm. And I do believe, I mean, what if he would have, I mean, Chris Rock is like 140 pounds. He played Muhammad Ali. What if he would have fallen? What if he would have hit his head? Right. What if he would have been knocked unconscious? I mean, what if, what if, what if? What he did, my father always said to me, Annette, actions speak louder than words. And in my mind, he did both of those. Because when he went back to his seat and screamed out those profanities with such rage, that was also bad. And did I think they got it right? Yeah. I'm glad they didn't take the Oscar away because that had nothing to do with that. The work is the work. You know, you can't say, you know, Phil Spector killed Lana Clarkson, so take away all the work he did before. You can't do that. I mean, one is doesn't have anything to do with the other. Uh, in the future, I don't know. I mean, I guess if he should do a film and he gets nominated and he wins, I don't uh, during that ten year period. I don't think he should be able to pick up the award. I think somebody should mm. pick it up for him. How many cats do you have right now? 430. 430. I have two. <laughs> I have two. Music and star who thinks he's a star. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, they're beautiful. They're beautiful little boys. They think I'm Meryl Monroe in a bathrobe. They don't care. You know, just feed me and love me and whatever. Are you still scuba diving? That's funny, because I was just going to bring something up. Uh, Barbie and I dove the last time in Fiji with Jean-Michel Cousteau. We did a layout for body gloves, and that was, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. Um, I'm going, when I go to Port St. Lucie, uh, I'm going to make a trip to the Keys, because I love the Keys, and I'm going to do, I'm going to scuba dive and go fishing. I love stuff like that. I still do. I used to be a wonderful slalom water skier, too. I don't know if I'd be doing that right now. Uh, if, if you happen to think of it, uh, you, you could mention to Barbie that I've had a crush on her since, uh, well, since I was too young to be looking at that magazine she might have been in. <laughs> I'll tell her. She just <laughs> called me last night. I was at the track all day, and, <laughs> and then we went out, and I got the, she just got back into L.A. So when I speak with her later, <laughs> I will tell her that. And uh, I wanted to do my dolphin call. Do you know about my dolphin call? Uh, no, but I, I need to. Well, if you go to Victoria Beckham coming to America, there's a clip on it. I'll send it to you. Um, I, I came in from Florida for this event. They it picked like six top ladies in town, whatever that means. And I was one of them. And I was like getting really bored. So I'd just been scuba diving with the dolphins and whatever, and I said, Victoria, I said, even the dolphins want to welcome you to L.A., to Beverly Hills. I said, would you like to hear my dolphin call? Because I had been learning to imitate them. And she looked at me like I was from another planet, (laughs) and she said, yes, and I did. So I thought maybe we should end with that. (laughs) Oh, yes, please. 
And uh, it went viral. I guess that's the term. This was years ago. And kids would come up to me and they'd go, aren't you the dolphin call lady? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready? I'm, yeah, well, <laughs> as, as ready as I can be. Hey, well, take the phone away from your ear, okay? <laughs> I have to think dolphin for a second. Hold on. Oh, my God. Flipper just came up to our studio window. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cece, you are an absolute delight. It has been so much fun to talk with you today. I'm so grateful for you making time for us. I hope you'll come back maybe around the time of the release of the documentary. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. And uh, thank you so much, The Fugitive. Thank you. Thank you, Cece. You are absolutely wonderful, and I look forward to chatting with you again and We'll we'll get something coming your way soon. Thank you, love. That is Carol Connors, CC, talking with us. And uh, you can visit her website to learn more. She would love to have you stop by and say hello there. It's simply carolconnors.com. And uh, check in there and find out what's going on in her world. She's a hoot and a half right there. <laughs> Connors could have gone a couple more hours with her, and there still would have been stories left over. Just amazing. And and the energy that she has is just contagious. Absolutely. Check out the website. Listen to some of her music as well. Carol Connors with us here on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.